Welcome to Carry the Mat, where we pursue meaning in life, legacy, and leadership. Join us as we seek to learn some of life's most difficult yet valuable hard-earned lessons from men and women who have experienced obstacles and victories firsthand, striving to serve one another based on our unique God-given abilities, not interested in merely talking about it, but determined to be about it. If that sounds like you, then let's carry the mat together. Every man dies, but not every man truly lives. Now to your hosts, Ben Brandenburg and Daniel Moss. This is Carry the Mat. What's up, y'all? We're back again for another episode of Carry the Mat. I'm Ben Brandenburg. I'm here with Daniel Moss. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with a good friend of mine, Muhammad Masakwa. And uh, Muhammad has got a lot for us today. And um, I'm just excited for everybody to get to know him better. Um, it's a guy I look up to um, both just um, the way he cares himself, his knowledge base on a lot of different things, and also just the way he conducts himself with his family. And that's uh, a lot we can learn from him. And uh, we met, I met Mo Mass back uh, in the, during the Georgia days. I was kind of cutting my teeth coming around Georgia football a little bit more. Obviously, still work up the athletic department, but we didn't overlap a ton there. But it seems like Mo Mass is just a familiar face to everybody in the program. And he comes back, and I know everybody picks his brain about what he does. He's going to talk a little bit about his consulting business. He's going to talk a little bit about his family. He'll talk a little bit about the Georgia days, some of the adversity he's had to overcome that he didn't you know, choose a path that he didn't choose, but we'll get to that in the conversation. But uh, Momaz, welcome in and uh, excited to have you have you with us today. What's up, brother? It's always a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, man. I know you haven't met Daniel, but uh, Daniel was uh, chatting. With, he was asking me about Georgia days and reminiscing on your, your old, uh, your, your, your glory days when y'all played Florida. <laughs> I know the fans yeah, I'm, I'm old now. I wish I was still in shape for some of the guys. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. You can still do it. You can you still got it. Obviously, how much do you can make it back to Athens now? I mean, yeah, the guys I'm sure would love to hear from you as far as uh learning from your your expertise of playing in the NFL, but how much do you make it back to Athens? I wish I could make it back more. It's probably two to three times a year now. Um, once in the off season, try to get back for a game. And then there's something that's just random. And it's exciting. It's exciting just to see what Kirby's done with the program. Everybody that's still there involved in the program like yourself, um, seeing familiar faces, uh, Josh, uh, all the investments that's been made. Uh, yeah. And it, it's, it, it, it makes you reminisce every time you walk through the building because the energy of football is alive and well in Atlanta where I live. Um, and then you see the work that's being put in when you actually get there and it, it makes you want to play again, but then you realize that you're uh, a couple of years too far removed. <laughs> well, we've had some good number ones over the years, but Jack Saint, Rosemary Jack Saint, I mean, it kind of looks like you out there, man. I mean, he's he's, he's doing, um, he's kind of one of the guys this year that they're calling to step up after A.D. Mitchell left. And uh, it's cool to see a number one uh, being wrapped by a receiver. Obviously, Sony carried that torch pretty good when he was there, but uh, we've had some good number ones, yourself included. Yeah, I think we'll give Sony a pass, but I think that number should stay with the receivers. Um, George Pickens <laughs> did it well. Uh, <laughs> it's in good hands now. Uh, Reggie Ward before I got there. Uh, and, and so it's just a, it's one of those things that when you see a guy and a lot of us kind of have the same body type, um, you, you know, uh, and these guys just continue to get better. They, they, they build off of the work that everybody's done. And so it, it's exciting. I, I think uh, the the players that have worn it uh, allow the jersey to still be um, relevant and well. And when you see it out, you know that uh, somebody's playing well in it. Absolutely. I mean, we went to the bookstore last weekend after the game. Um, my two cousins were in town. Uh, and they're like, my mom wants a jersey. My mom wants a jersey. And so we went in there, and you know, now with NIL, they have like all the jerseys with a name on the backs. But the one set of jerseys they had that had no name, they're just like the standard jersey. They were all number ones at the bookstore. <laughs> awesome, man. That, that's a that, that's the thing with number one. Number one and ninety nine, you can almost always find that that jersey combination somewhere. So we're we're lucky. <laughs> Absolutely, I feel like you should get some royalties for that. You know what I'm saying? I feel like you should, you know, guys, uh, you should get a little kickback on that. You know what I mean? 
it, there's too many guys to, to name that, that have worn the number. So I, I think we get like pennies on the dollar, if anything. <laughs> I know that's true. That's too chopped up. But number three is another one that just seems to stick around. It just seems like yeah. there's so many guys that wore number three at Georgia. Um, I that's saw another Todd good one. yesterday. I saw Todd Gurley. He was back at the game yesterday. So I caught up with him. Um, yeah, man. I mean, talk just a little bit about, you know, leading up to the Georgia days. Just tell us a little bit about. Um, your upbringing, obviously in Charlotte. I mean, I, I kind of remember um, I followed recruiting. Um, I was one of those guys that Rivals was kind of coming on the scene. Um, when I was in high school, I think that's when people really started to uh, to follow recruiting. I graduated in 2005 from high school. Were you 05? Yeah, we're the same year. Okay, sweet. Um, so, I mean, I was following that stuff. And uh, talk a little bit about your upbringing in Charlotte. Independence was such a powerhouse. You and Joe Cox. Shattered all kinds of records. Joe's now the um, still Alabama, right? So he's, yeah, tight ends coach at Alabama. Okay, cool. So just talk a little bit about take us through the years, just your upbringing in Charlotte, and uh, you know, on up to the Georgia days at least. Yeah. So ironically, sports was never like a real thing. Uh, my family were Liberian, and so coming over to America, even though I was born in Charlotte, culturally you raised Liberian, and this idea that you could get a scholarship to play football or football could be a real job. Um, was non-existent. And so we were more of an academic house and go to school. Uh, and, you know, you play sports as a kid just because you you enjoy it and you want to stay out of trouble. And then I get to Independence and Tommy Knotts had this juggernaut rolling where we won 109 games in a row, seven straight championships. And that just kind of changed the trajectory of what I thought about sports. Uh, I had a guy, Chris Leak, who went on to Florida, won a national championship, and he brought a lot of attention to the program. And so we believed that this thing was possible. Uh, and so high school went uh, well, where I got a chance to go to um, or get offered by a lot of different schools. And this this country guy from Georgia came uh, named Mike Bobo, and he ended up kind of kind of recruiting me and Joe. We, Me and Joe wanted to go play school together, but uh, it wasn't looking like it. And then Georgia uh, came in the picture. Uh, Joe got an offer. He committed like a day or two later. Uh, and then they both looked at me like, what are you going to do? And it, everything, the stars just aligned. Uh, Reggie Brown was leaving. Fred Gibson was leaving uh, in, in the 04 class. And it just made sense uh, with what Coach Rick was doing to build the program. Uh, and it's probably one of the best decisions I've made. Yeah, that's another good number one we mentioned. Uh, Reggie, man, that dude, that dude was, could fly. I remember he was like yeah. track fast before you had all these guys. Now it seems like it's common for these track guys to play football, but. He was a guy, I think, was a dual sport athlete. And then Freddie played basketball as basketball. well. So, you know, I guess y'all had a lot to live up to when you came in of those guys moving on. Um, yeah, and and they were great. And I, I can't forget about Brian McClendon. Um, he's yeah, a guy yeah. who, uh, my best two seasons, he had his hands all over it um, when he was a senior my freshman year. And then when he came back as a, a GA my senior year, just relatable, um, full of wisdom, uh, he's like a big brother where he just takes you under his wings. And so um, I, I can't forget about him. I got a couple of buddies that uh, are from Freddie's hometown and went to high school with Freddie. Mm -hmm. And they told me he was a dog at basketball. Like, yeah. You know, it was crazy. <laughs> a, a lot of guys. Yeah, they're County Gators, baby. Yeah. Their first sport is actually basketball or something else. Like half Half of the athletes think they're in the wrong sport. Uh, if I would have been taller, if I would have been this, I'd, I would have hooped. So, yeah, he, he, great athlete. Yeah, BMAC, yeah, you mentioned BMAC. It's so good to have him and Coach Bobo back on the hallways. You know, Todd was coming around the program, too. He was probably a grad assistant when you were coming through. So there's a lot of familiar faces. I mean, I guess Curry was um, helping out maybe your freshman year. Was he on staff? He was a running back coach my freshman year. And I remember when he got to Alabama and they were like, yeah, Kirby's smart. He was here. And I was like, the guy that was a running back coach that is allowed the defensive grew. And he was like, yeah. And just to see just his trajectory, um, you knew he was a great coach. He, he can coach anything. You know, he coach running backs. He probably coach quarterbacks. He, he doesn't miss a beat. I've been in practice. And to have a guy like that who is, you know, Georgia blood through and through, and you come back and you see a familiar face. And there's a reason all the old guys keep coming back just because it feels like home. He feels like an extension of uh, what I was when I was there. Yeah, that's awesome. That says a lot about the program, what you just said. I mean, the culture is right. I mean, you got to think um, 
from our president, uh, Moorhead, to Josh Brooks, to Kirby, to Bobo, to BMAC, to Ron Corson, to you name it, to Gant, to um, the, the, like, even the referees that are on the, the practice field, a lot of them yeah. are the same faces. Um, yeah. Perry, I could go on and just name and name it. Rhonda, um, you know, Blada, it's, it's countless names that are still intact. And so it just feels like you've kind of gone away for a couple of couple months and then you come back and you see your family all over again. Yeah, your freshman year, man, that was a special season with DJ. Obviously, DJ, you mentioned familiar faces, is back helping out with radio and doing the Fox 5 stuff. We see him all the time. But, man, I mean, I was up there in the student section at the time being a freshman and uh, Lil Wayne had just dropped, you know, that go <laughs> DJ stuff and, I mean, we're up in the 300 level, just going nuts. Every time he would score, that would just break out. Go on, DJ. Yeah. Um, so that was so cool, man. I feel like our offense just looked so different from green to, to from green to shock just that year. But uh, I feel like shock was a little bit ahead of his time in the sense of you saw what Deshaun Watson, you know, was able to do. And I mean, the dual threat thing was there, but I mean, I feel like the way we utilized him, I just loved our offense. In 2005, it was uh, it was just a different look, and um, he was just a good blend of not you know being not just a dual threat guy, but like he could pass you know really well as well you know good, but he could take off and, and cut you with his legs, but he wasn't a run first guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. So yeah. it was a light blend of uh, of a quarterback, in my opinion, but being a really good passer, but also being able to be athletic enough to take off and cut you, you know. Yeah, huge asset. Um, great to walk into just to have stability at the position. Um, just a, a great core group of guys, great leadership. Um, you think on the other side, Kedrick Golston, you think on our side, BMAC, you think of Big Pope, you think of um, it, it, it's the ideal situation. You know, a, a, a lot of times, especially now, you get the transfer porter and you don't have familiar faces but when you have these individuals that have been tried and true through the program and the, they know the culture and they believe in it and they're willing to take you under their ring, their, their wing, it just breeds success. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be crazy too. Cause that was your freshman year. You're coming in freshman year. And by the end of the year, y'all beat LSU in the SEC championship. Like, yeah. That's quite the standard set. Yeah. And we, we were, um, you know, we had a lot of talent. Uh, we, we were always one thing away. I think that year, um, I think Shock had a knee injury or something like that that knocked him out of the Florida game. Um, we we in 2007 we kind of started slow and then we got hot late, and so we're always one thing away. And I think right now we're we figured out how to close the gap or whatever that that loose end is. Um, and so it, it's exciting. It, it's truly exciting when you think of everybody that's come through. Yeah, I'm sure your era guys. Y'all are probably always talking about, man. I wish the playoff era was here. Um, oh yeah, because a couple of those, several of those teams you mentioned would have been in the mix. At least by the end of the year, we're definitely in that top four. Dude, 2017. Yeah, uh, I guess that's the Hawaii year. Uh, yeah, where y'all beat them in the Shore, which I was at that game. That was incredible. But that team that year, I will die on the hill that nobody was beating Georgia at the end of the year. Well, that team was rolling. Yeah. I mean, you see it now where teams kind of squeak in. They they are trying to figure it out somewhere through the season or they show it flat, but it's not an accurate representation of how they actually play. That was us in 20, 2007 where we kind of had a couple just flat, I think, South Carolina and Tennessee where we just didn't show up. And then once we figured out how to bring it all together, we brought it all together in a major way. Yeah, at the right time. Um, mm -hmm. Dan, you were, before we started, you wanted to ask about that. Oh, yeah. So, it, it actually, in regard to the 07 uh, season, so like, this is kind of like a, a, a two-parter. Uh, going into the Florida game that year, I mean, that was like, at that point in Georgia history, Florida was like the game that like every Georgia fan dreaded because it was like, no matter how talented Georgia was, it just felt like we weren't going to get past Florida for whatever reason it is it's just they just had our number and you you look at coach rick who in my book is one of the best things that's ever happened to the university of georgia but from a fan perspective like he's seen he's a very calm guy what 
What was there a difference in the atmosphere leading up to Florida Week in practice? I mean, was there did, did he exude any other kind of like <laughs> aggression? Because y'all rushing the end zone was the most non-Mark written move ever. And <laughs> it, I I think that's accurate. Where he uh, it wasn't planned. It wasn't like hey, you know, everybody go rush the field. It was just play loose. Uh, if you happen to get a 15-yard penalty celebrating, um, that's on me. And so guys were just kind of trying to figure out all week, what would it be? So every time somebody would score in practice, they'd do something crazy. Uh, and it was, it, it, the Florida game was probably more mental than it was talent. It, it was just, they have our number um, and you go in and you're extra tight for whatever reason. Because you, regardless if you want to pay attention to it or not, you understand the dynamics that we hadn't beaten Florida in however many years. Uh, and so once he gave us the authority to just kind of cut loose, I think there was just a lot more freedom. There wasn't not, nothing stiff. And I actually don't know how the, the stampede happened. It, it, you, I don't think anybody actually knows. I think one person just got overly excited. And if you see, it's kind of like phases of people running in. And then before you know it, it's, you know, 100 people on the field. Uh, uh, thank oh, God. Well, that makes it so that. much better that it wasn't planned. <laughs> no, I wasn't, it wasn't planned. I, I know Coach Rick was like, what in the – what is going on? So, <laughs> My man Trenton. My man Trenton got started it. Oh, man. Uh, he was, yeah, was he there. was having a, a great he time. Uh, he's, he's all 6'5", uh, 300 some pounds. Wow. Yeah, great. I, I guess the, the last follow-up to that is uh, – what was the locker room like after that game? What did Coach Rick like? I bet he was just going bananas after that. And that's the thing that I appreciate about this era because they actually have film to document this stuff. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I don't even remember, to be honest <laughs> with you, just outside of just pure joy and celebration of we finally got it done. Um, but I like there's no like vivid memory outside of just organized chaos of, of people just kind of going wild and, and having a good time. And I actually wish that game would have been in Athens because you'd actually get a chance to celebrate when you got to hop on a plane and then fly back to Atlanta. Um, and the festi festivities kind of calm down once you get back in town. Then they, <laughs> then they climb right back up. I remember <laughs> downtown and they, yeah, they, it got back to being lit pretty quickly once y'all got back in town, I do recall. That was, uh, my, that was my freshman year in college. And I was in the end zone with my buddy Patrick Bird. Uh, in the end zone, it was rushed. And I can tell you from like a fan perspective, mm -hmm. it almost felt like dangerous. So I was like, everybody uh, everybody was going that crazy. Yeah, that that, that could have been bad. Um, but thank God it, it all worked out. That, that could have been brawl-ish. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we could talk Georgia stuff all day. I mean, that, that obviously uh, is fun to hear some stories. But let's transition a little bit. You mentioned Liberia. Um, I'm curious. I mean, I don't know this, but tell us about like, you, was your childhood over there or was it just your folks came over? Um, you know? Yeah. So crazy backstory is um, civil unrest started to happen in the early eighties. My folks came over here um, and then it kind of calmed down a little bit. I was born in Charlotte, but my parents were finding their way. So when I was almost six months, they sent me back to, or they sent me to Liberia to uh, live with my grandma just to kind of give them an opportunity to get settled. They were kind of right at college age when they got over here. And so they were trying to find their way. I went to Liberia until I was almost four. And then that's when the war escalated. And then uh, I got sent back to America just so I wouldn't wouldn't be in that. Um, and so it was, I don't know, humble beginnings, I would say. Uh, uh, immigrant parents trying to find their way in a, in a foreign land. Um, so we moved around a lot around Charlotte, uh, to Chicago and back, um, to Charlotte, uh, just trying to figure out life, I guess. And so very appreciative now, uh, for that experience because I think it humbles you. It, it, it makes you resilient. Um, you're not as affected with certain things because you've seen it in a different capacity. Um, so yeah. That's so interesting. Um, what, um, have you been back? you know, in your adult years, have you been back um, to visit at all to, um, to Africa? I was going to go pre-COVID, um, but then, or like right as COVID was happening, we were planning it. My grandma's actually here now. She just got a knee replacement. When she goes back, we're going to go with her. 
Um, some of it was just, you know, making excuses. Some of it was just not ready to kind of go back. Um, but I think like the time and now to get over there, just to see everything and reconnect with everything I'm excited for. Will you take your daughter with you when you do that? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. That's all, mm-hmm. man. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, so yeah, you, I mean, talking about, you mentioned the athletic athletics was not really on your, your radar at an early age, but not naturally seeing you had some ability, um, you know, co- coming into your, your high school years and all that, you get a chance to get drafted. Talk a little bit about that process. Again, we could talk a long time. We're going to get into some other stuff, but I'm just curious uh, about that process for you, obviously settling in in Cleveland. Talk a little, if you will, take us kind of a quick um, overview of your time in Cleveland and what your NFL experience was like. Yeah. And, you know, going to a place like Georgia, it becomes real to you. And once again, if you, the context of the time where you, you didn't have social media to kind of report the intricacies of everything. And so it wasn't until we saw guys like Tim Jennings get drafted. that it was like, Oh, this is, this is for real. Uh, and then, so you fast forward four years where I get an opportunity to go in the second round with Cleveland. It was surreal. Cause you, you changed the trajectory of your family and this thing that you've worked so hard for, you become one of like 16, 1700 people in the world to do, which is super exciting. Um, and going to Cleveland was, I have two perspectives on it. When I was there, I was like, wow, this place is like, crazy wild um just because we didn't have as much success as we needed to while there but looking back on it i think there were a lot of it's just a lot of lost potential we had a lot of talent uh we were very young we didn't necessarily know how to be pros and i've taken that now just to think about like how much potential we miss out on just not developing and putting the right structures in place but it was phenomenal. I had great teammates. Um, still talk to a lot of them to this day. Uh, a lot of trash talk because some of them went to schools that we play. Um, yeah, the one thing I wish I could have changed was not being injured. I, I think the injury bug was one thing with concussions and knee and broken foot and shoulder and all that stuff. That once your body starts to deteriorate mentally, you feel like you can do some of the same things, but your body just doesn't move the way you want to. Um, and so after five years, it was over and I wish I could have, you know, uh, played a lot longer, but that experience is one that, you know, I will forever be grateful, grateful for. When you got into the league, uh, I got to Cleveland, is there like a particular player or coach that like you recognized from the onset as like, okay, this is a leader taking people under his wing, like getting, I guess you as a rookie, up to speed of what life's like, you know, at this next level, because I'm sure it's far different than Georgia. It's far different. And that was the thing. We didn't really have a lot of vets that were, you know, when I talk about Georgia now, where you've had people that have been in the system for a long time. Um, I walked into a new head coach. Um, I think my, after my first year, the team was getting sold to a new owner. And so then you go through a cycle and then another year you have another head coach. And so a lot of turnover. I think looking back now, I know what a leader would have been, um, whether it be guys like Mike Adams, who was actually a free agent, and he ended up winning a Super Bowl, becoming a Pro Bowl player, but he was a special teams player there. But you could just tell he he just did everything right. Um, and so he didn't have like the title or the position of a leader, but he was for sure a leader. And then um, God rest his soul, a guy named David Patton, who um, he was only there for a couple, maybe like a couple weeks or a month. Um, but he was a guy that came from New England, but we just didn't retain him. That was the only problem. Um, had he been, had I been able to go through the season and just watch him take care of his body, watch film, understand how to be a pro, I think it could have been amazing. But I think he was in like year 15, 16. And so it was one of those things that I think he was like, I, I'm too old for this. I'm, I'm ready to retire. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, you mentioned uh, turnover, not only coaches, but quarterbacks. I mean, you probably had, no telling how many quarterbacks up there, hard to get a rhythm going um, like that. I mean, right. I mean, didn't you have, it was, I mean, Cleveland during the, that time was. Take a guess. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Brady, uh, how many? Brady Quinn, Brady Quinn. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Brady Quinn. We had seven guys. Um, Derek Anderson, Brady Quinn, uh, Jake DeLome, Seneca Wallace, Colt McCoy, uh, Brandon Whedon, Thad Lewis. And uh, I mean, the lab, that's just, that's wild. That's like when they were doing the, I saw the Washington Redskins do that with all the jerseys of the past 
quarterback since like one season, one season with it. DeLome had to be a good locker room guy, though. I mean, he he had, he found a lot of success over his career in Carolina. So I mean, because that I guess that was post playing in the Super Bowl for Carolina. Yeah, he he would have been great, but he had a high ankle sprain after Week One, um, oh and so that he only played one real game, and wow. that was his last year in the league. And so he was he was a wise guy. You just didn't get enough time with him to understand the the cadence of you know what a what playing with a vet was like. And each quarterback individually was really great, but once you start to rotate them in and out, um, it becomes challenging of who's leading the team, and everybody wants you to be a different place. And so it was great because each guy was phenomenal. Um, but I don't know if any of the the seven or any of them that have been there actually got a chance to say, this is your team, this is your guy. There was always some type of inner working quarterback challenge. Um, but still keeping contact with a lot of those guys. They're, they're one of the bright spots of being able to meet phenomenal people um, that you can still be friends with, you know, forever later. That's awesome. Man, so going through those years that you just mentioned, those areas of playing high school ball, college, NFL, you know, that is a long stretch of time to where you're leaning on your body to perform. Um, you're counting on your body to be – I mean, you mentioned the injury bug, but, I mean, you obviously hit some adversity later in life that uh, that I think a lot of people maybe um, – now might not even know about you just by the way you – carried yourself and the way you've handled it. Um, I want to get into that a little bit. Just like, if you would, just kind of take us through, you know, share what that was and uh, kind of catch us up on, um, kind of paint us a picture, if you will, about of how that went down. I know that's kind of flashing forward a little bit from your NFL days, but if you will kind of take us from NFL days to that adversity that I'm speaking to and uh, share with us about that. Yeah, so it's... Um... 2013 was my last season. Um, and so 2014, you kind of transition back out into the world. Um, got like a real job at Morgan Stanley, um, was doing the whole professional thing. And, you know, we live here in the South where there's a lot of land and people ride four wheelers and ATVs and side by sides. And it was something that, you know, I did and you, you go out with the guys and you're just kind of letting off steam and having fun. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a ride that doesn't go as planned uh, where I'm coming around a corner and the ATV just loses control and ends up flipping, shatter my left hand completely. I thought that they could put it back together because you don't really have a concept of what becoming an amputee is, especially when you've been able to use your body at a level that, you know, uh, is it's extremely high. And so it was a, a, a process of going to the hospital, the surgeon look at me and say, Hey, you know, this isn't going to be good. Um, going through like 10 surgeries, trying to keep the hand together and then ultimately not being able to keep it together. So they had to, um, amputate the whole thing. And you go through every emotion where, uh, that, that this was, if I fast forward 2017, um, so a few years after I had already retired, but you know, still stay active, stay run around, still, you know, lift and hoop and do all that stuff. And a lot of my identity is, you know, I played receiver. And so not being able to have a hand is somewhat challenging, um, just even mentally now when I think about it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a process of every emotion possible, um, anxiety, depression, fear, why, you know, you're praying about it and it doesn't change the situation. But I think you, once you get to the other side of just exhausting all those emotions and getting the right therapy and the right mental health, you're able to just say, okay, this is reality now. What do I do about it? Do I just um, have a pity party for the next however long I have? Or can I start to move forward and make progress and whatever that means, which, you know, it's 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 always a work in progress, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, well, I think your, your mental toughness, you know, from playing football all those years, you know, you're – are, are being exercised in a way that through life that all those lessons and principles you're like you've been disciplined in that being an athlete it kind of you had to walk the walk in something that was not on the gridiron you know what I mean um yeah um what's crazy is it's it felt very much like that because Ron Corson got involved very early where he found 
Ron Corson's, you know, the head athletic trainer at Georgia. Yeah. He found the surgeons, um, you know, the ton of Georgia people that just kept coming, uh, whether Kirby stopping by, Gant stopping by, Ron stopping by. Um, uh, and, and so Georgia was with me and my family the, the, the whole mm-hmm. time. And so it felt like rehabbing something different. Um, and, and I think Ron was my primary care physician up until like three or four years ago. Uh, I was well into my thirties until I was like, you know, I actually need to find a real doctor. I can't keep calling ah. for everything. Oh, you can still call. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I feel like we've heard a lot of stories though over the years about how Georgia remains and, and their athletes lives post their time playing in Sanford. you right. So that's something really special. I think it says a lot about, um, university of Georgia. Yeah, I mean, it's it's we're on this call from a Georgia connection, you know, and, and my wife went to Georgia, my my friends are Georgia, my um, I probably 90 percent of what I get done in business is coming through a Georgia person or referral or network or some connectivity to the university. Um, and, and that's just been tremendous. You know, like I said, my surgeon, multiple of my surgeons had uh, Georgia connectivity. And so we all just kind of do life together. I live in Atlanta. Um, it's just It just feels like home. Yeah, that really speaks to the theme of why we wanted to have these conversations. Uh, obviously being Carry the Mat um, and Parlan from Scripture, just what is is said through Scripture and the examples of uh, the friends that step up for the ABT and the gospel. Um, that's really the genesis of while we're having these conversations. And so you're a very appropriate guest for that. Um, and I appreciate the examples, the tangible examples about the people that have stepped up from Georgia. I, I'm much the same way. I mean, I'm doing PT up there now. That's not something that um, that I would uh, expect, but, you know, it's something that they've said, hey, come and, and, and get stretched out and do as much as you can. And uh, it's something that's helping me too. So I understand that. Um, what you're saying about, about that, um, those connections and uh, feeling like that's divine in the sense of God putting those people in our, in our lives and uh, connecting those. It's not by happenstance that that just, just happens. Um, I'm super grateful for that. And I yeah. Know. I mean, it's, this is being recorded on a Sunday, you know, and, you know, uh, I get the grace of being uh, on this call just because my wife knows you, um, I know you, um, you know, we're 15 years in of this relationship. And, and so it's a, it's one that we, I think we try to look out for each other. We try to do life with each other. And even if we don't see each other every day, you, you know, you got a, a network of people that it's not transactional. It's like truly doing life of trying to come through um, and be there for you. And when, when you have that around you, you almost become failure proof to a certain extent where you have the same values, you have the same morals, you believe in the same things. Um, and it's inclusive of whatever you look like, whoever you are, wherever your background is. Um, and I, I don't think many organizations have that or, or people have access to that. So it's, it's truly a blessing. Yeah, you're one of the first guys that I, I use. I use this feature all the time on my phone now that my hands are kind of failing me a little bit. But the voice te- the voice notes, I remember when I was kind of going <laughs> from a health standpoint, um, I, I get a couple, you know, each week I get a voice note from you. Hey, it's Mo, just checking in, just lifting you up. And uh, that meant a lot to me. And so uh, I try to reciprocate that and, and leave that with the different folks when I can. And uh, that's something that I, I use from time to time now. Um, but uh, I want to stay on this uh, a little bit. Um, you mentioned when you were in the ATV accident, um, you talked a little bit about right in the moment, actually when it happened. You know, you kind of come to explain your, you know, what you're experiencing, what you're seeing, and then also the people around you, what they're seeing and kind of how, how much fear was in the moment and uh, kind of rushing you to, to get taken care of. Um, what was that like, you know, right when it happened? Well, they're liars, to be honest with you, because they remain so calm uh, that I didn't realize it was as significant as it was. They, they kept telling me everything was going to be all right. Uh, and, but no, they, I mean, just the 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 jumping into to action and the making sure everything was taken care of. Like I, I literally 
from the time it happened to the time that I left the, the hospital, I did nothing but just kind of participate in surgeries. Like I, I can't explain from, you know, my wife being there every step of the way to people being super proactive to what the next step had to be and not just relying on protocol, but going the extra mile and making the additional call to get the right people there. Um, and so that, that was amazing. Uh, and so I, I truly, it took a long time to truly process what had taken place because of the support that I had going through it. And I think that's like all you can ask for when things are difficult, just that you got a, a group of people around you that truly care about you and just want you to, to do well. Um, and they're checking on you and they care about you and they're, you know, dropping food off and they're pushing you out of your comfort zone to do things and get back on your feet. Um, and so I, I honestly did not realize um, how crazy it was outside of the physical pain. Um, but then it wasn't until like later that I was like, oh, wow, this is this is a whole process here and I'm in it. Um, and then even when you come to that realization, when I when I realized that I still had a ton of support and that's why I don't I don't necessarily I understand, you know, obviously I'm part of the disabled community now but I still feel very much like myself um, as an individual, if that makes any sense. Um, as far as like the, the hospital and all, um, I've heard you talk about it some like, uh, in some videos and all that people have done for you. How, correct me if I'm wrong, They the first initial reaction with the doctors, they tried to, to fix it, correct? I, yeah, first it was, we got to take it all off. And then you're like, whoa, let's just do whatever you got to do to, to make it happen. And even the patience of going against whatever, you know, the medical expertise was to, to try to go through the process um, was, I probably didn't get, I, had I been with a different set of doctors, I, I probably don't have that outcome. Um, and had it come from a different source, like if it was just a 911 call to a random, you know, emergency room the outcome's completely different. Um, but like I said, sometimes outcomes are bad, you know, and that doesn't mean that, you know, God doesn't love you or, you know, you got bad luck. Just sometimes life deals you a set of cards that you got to deal with. But the best outcome for a challenging situation was achieved. And, and yeah. that's kind of all you can ask for. And I think we, we had a chance to talk to Jared Wallace. I'm sure you've connected with Jared over time. And, uh, you know, the fact that, kind of surrendering that to God to allow him to use it in a way. I mean, I see that, that fruit in both y'all's lives of being able to invest in others because you've been through something like that. Um, I think that's um, essentially you've got two ways you can handle it. You can surrender that or you can, um, you know, trap it and try to carry it all yourself, but you've been able to invest in others. If anything, guys use that in a way that, uh, it's giving you more of a platform just because of what you've been through. You know, you can have conversations with people that and, and empathize with people on a different level dealing with the loss of your hand and being a guy that used to depend on your hand literally for your profession. And, you know, now you've got a whole, um, I guess, tool in your your arsenal to uh, to be able to pour into others. And I think you you guys both have done a good job of honoring that and leaning into that and, uh, you know, being used. I yeah. think that's powerful and, you know, a testament to how you've handled it, you know? Yeah. yeah. It was a blessing to talk to Jared. Um, cause he, you know, he, he experienced it. And, and so yeah. th there's a certain ability to communicate what you don't even know you need to hear. Um, David Pollock being the same way where yeah. reached out to him and, you know, after he had his next situation, just, um, all the wisdom that he was able to, to give. And when you look at a guy like Pollock, most people can't do what he did on the football field, but they can they can glean lessons from what he experienced. And so that element of, yeah, a person may not be able to run and jump in a stadium full of you know X amount of people, but when you connect to them on a human level and say, I don't know what you're going through, but I've experienced something that, this nugget right here may be able to help you and they can tangibly apply it to their life for the better. It's just a, a different animal where I, I come across people that from all walks of life where 
you know, some are lawyers and, you know, highly intelligent and professionals that have become great friends. Some are children that have experienced stuff. And we're all on this journey together in some shape or form because we have this bond that life has just dealt us and we're all just trying to do our best to to make the most of it. Yeah, Pollock's uh, been a good resource for me too. I've had a couple of good, really good conversations with, with him. And I mean, dealing with the unknown, I think is what, um, you know, taking yourself back mentally to the unknown of going through that season. I think Jared did a good job of that too, of understanding when he, when he was going through it, he didn't picture himself in the Olympics during the time. He's like, bro, I hope I can like walk upright at the time, you know? So I think it just, obviously, you know, God takes us through things. And same thing with Pollock. I mean, when it's nerve damage, you're, you're wondering, Hey, will I walk again? Will I be able to, you know, squeeze my hand again, you know? And, and, and so um, I think there's just a lot of unknown. I think that's how life is essentially with like, nothing's guaranteed. We, we, you know, we're all going through this, this walk and um, we're going to experience adversity. I mean, that's promised. Um, and that's modeled for us in others' lives. And it's almost also promised to us through scripture that we're going to experience adversity. And this is not some sort of prosperity gospel that we're not going to encounter trouble in this life. Like if you haven't, if you're walking through a season where you haven't experienced loss and trouble, I mean, it's coming. It's just, um, that is literally um, a part of this, this human experience of, of walking through this fallen world. But uh, again, you mentioned the people that kind of surrounded you and lifted you up during the time. That's essentially what we're here to do is to uh, lean on each other and not try to walk that road alone. You know what I mean? Um, so I think yeah. I've seen that in, in your testimony, Pollock, um, and also Jared. And, and I mean, that's no, no different for me um, and mm -hmm. my, my story as well. So um, yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I think the thing that I would, how do I say this in a, I kind of only, not only, I gravitate more towards people that have been through something in life. Anyone that's had it figured out or doesn't have a, a, a climb that they've had to make or something that, that they've had to go through, I'm probably not going to have a lot of, of, of interest or trust in what it is because everyone that I think has like made it legitimately has gone through something or they they put in something um to get to the other side and they're they're speaking from a these are the gems that you need to know versus speaking from theory of you know if you do one two three then you know everything's going to be blessed in sunshine and rainbow but rather i'm going to give you the tools that you need for your journey to increase your odds of whatever you're trying to accomplish and hopefully God's blessing it. Um, but outside of that, it's just hard to, to trust the person that's kind of like, Hey, Ben, I know what you're going through. And they're like, how, like how you have no idea of the late nights. You have no idea of the tears. You have no idea of like the depths that one has to go through experiencing this. Um, and they may see like, Oh, this person looks like they have it together. But when you know a person's like, gone through and they've had those sleepless nights and they cry and they have real range of human emotions, which is natural. Um, you can like sit and almost listen to what they're saying. And like, this person is doing this out of love when they tell me that they're, they're going to do the best to help me get from, you know, point A to point Z on mm. my journey. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's really, really, uh, inspiring perspective. Y'all, y'all keep doing what you're doing is, is needed. Like I, I gleam inspiration, um, from your spirit. I gleam inspiration from just who you've been sh shown to be for, you know, however long I've, I've known you 2005, six, seven, whenever we met, um, you know, and there's just a lot of time of an accurate representation of a person that is just full of love, just full of resilience, full of, of just everything that you are. Thanks, bro. I appreciate that. Second that one. Mm -hmm. I agree. <laughs> oh.
No, only, only thing I only thing I would say is that you got to get rid of the the, the Falcons gear. You can't know, have anybody near you with Falcons gear. <laughs> no, that game last week we were talking before we started this. I mean, I know you're a Charlotte Charlotte boy, and we. Um, I mean, I, I'm not. I can't say. I mean, Daniel's a better Falcons fan than me. I, you know, yeah. I, I pull for the home team. You know, I'm from Georgia, so I naturally mm-hmm. I want to see him do well. But I can't. <laughs> I'm like I'm a die, like I'm a die hard. But I know you were there watching your boy um, Houston last week, right? Yeah. And so, did he have a sack last week? I, I wasn't. I don't know. No, he didn't. He didn't get a sack. He got a tackle for loss. Um, so I, 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 I expect him to have a lot more sacks though on, on the season. Just um, and he's he's one of those guys, man. Just just a heart of gold. Who, yeah. um, you know, he has a real backstory, and you see the way he lives his life. You see the way he loves his family. You just see the way that he is as a friend. Um, it, it's it, you just root for a guy like that. You, you just root for him. I hope he gets thirty sacks this year, honestly. Um, and and he just continues to play for yeah. as long as he wants, and continues to impact in, in the way God has blessed him to. Justin yeah. Houston is a guy that I have forever wanted the Falcons to go get. I mean, for all the team different teams he's played mm-hmm. for, it's like there's something to be said even later in your career where he might not be the same guy he was eight years ago. But my buddy and I were at dinner Friday night. We were talking about NFL in general. We were talking about the Falcons, and we got to talking about the Falcons-Panthers game. And that team, I'm telling you, like two or three years, watch out. Like They've got the pieces. They've got uh, Brian Burns on the D-line, Derek Brown. And then you have these incredibly talented young guys but also have a guy like Justin to be kind of the leader for them and to show them, you know, the way to success in the league. I think that team's going to be good. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. I, I hope so. He, he's, he's everything and more that you want um, in your locker room. I, I would have loved to have that type of presence, um, a huge asset um, for, yeah. for everything. And, uh, he still has a lot of left in the tank. <laughs> He's a guy that's just such a technician, and he works on his craft. I remember him staying after practice and just doing doing extra reps. I mean, Mike McDonald, who's the DC of the Ravens, had him for a couple of years there in Baltimore. Said the same thing. I mean, just a technician and um, and just worked on his craft constantly. We played him in high school, so I'm from Augusta, mm-hmm. and we played Statesboro when Statesboro they won back to back state champs, you know, and in uh, my high school stretch right there. And uh, Justin would just wreck the game. I mean, you can't – I mean, Justin Houston is, like, doing what he does. I mean, you can't block that, especially, yeah. uh, you know, if you would have seen our offensive line, it would have made you laugh. But, like, my quarterback, my good friends, Jimmy, uh, we still talk about him just getting ear-holed. Yeah, D'Angelo, baby – yeah, baby Tyson uh, on the D-line. Yeah, Houston. Yeah, John Knox at safety. And then you have my other buddy, Tommy Watkins. Um, I don't know if Tommy was – he was a walk-on at Georgia, but he was a stud. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a stud, middle linebacker. Um, yeah, they, they were just just great. And my little brother, quick story, like, was a good basketball player in high school. And um, he's much taller than me. Uh, you know, definitely <laughs> different genetics. Uh, he, he's my dad. He's like my dad. My dad's tall. My mom's short. And uh, obviously, you know – it always happens that way. But anyways, I had to deal with that growing up, having a young little brother that laps me when I'm about fifth grade. You know what I mean? But he got dunked on by Justin Houston. When I say he got dunked on by Justin Houston, I mean, it's like the whole gym just, ooh, like the whole gym just makes this like wincing. Like it was one of those. And again, I don't know if the film's out there. It wasn't like everybody was uploading every film to huddle like they are now, but it was classic. And every time Justin does something, I always – Screenshot it. <laughs> How much he, grief did you give him? He held it. He held his own. It was like no shame. It was almost like, well, it's like, what you know, do you I, do? Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine though, you guys at Georgia going to a court at Ramsey and just doing work, uh, you know, hoping at the Ramsey Center. I know y'all would go over there and just just throw it down. I remember seeing Brandon Boykin. We had Boykin on here. Uh, d- delete his episode. <laughs> I mean, yeah, man, Boykin can jump though. That that guy is bouncy. I mean, he's, you know what? He's listed like he's listed like five ten and a half. I 
I'd be he's five nine. I, I actually, but yeah, he but that guy Duncan. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, he could get up. Nick Marshall was a guy that could get up. I mean, when he was at you know, it's Georgia before he transferred to Auburn. Um, there was just some guys. The guys that looked best, Duncan, though, were obviously the guys that have to jump the highest. The guys that are the the five ten. Those are the ones you got to be careful of when they can throw it down. You know. Yeah, Boykin can fly. I actually owe him. Um, he beat me the last time we played horse, so I got I got a, a gripe with him right now. <laughs> so, all right, just to get it straight, so your your hand, I mean, you you lost. Is it your left hand that left hand? Okay, your your dominant hand is still intact, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's good. So it doesn't affect yeah. your jumper as much. Yeah. I I think it does though. I, that's the I mean, excuse I, I use. You, you, you use the. <laughs> Do you use the prosthetic when you're shooting at all to balance, or do you just want to? No, I, I take it off, um, and you just kind of work around it. You, you, life's just about adapting, and so I, you know, I, I can still, um, in a in a controlled setting, can still shoot decently. Um, sometimes if it's like a real game, which I don't play much of anymore, um, it's a little hard. But you just kind of you enjoy the moment, you enjoy the simple pleasures of life that you still have. Well, Jared was talking about how he has different attachments for different things. You know what I mean? It's so interesting. And he kind of walked us through that. Like, well, if I'm sprinting, he's obviously got the blade for this. And then he's got something if he's doing more medicine ball type things, training, you know, Mm -hmm. can carry more weight on it. So it's just, it's really interesting. So one more thing before we let you go, if you will, just run us through what you're doing professionally and take us through your family right now, um, living in Atlanta, just, Talk, talk a little bit about, you know, like what life looks like for you right now. Uh, life's good. Um, got a, got a, uh, uh, we got a four-year-old, a uh, little girl, um, been married 10 years now, um, uh, work uh, as an organizational psychologist, um, working a lot with the leadership teams, really trying to help them understand what are their human capital ch- challenges within their organizations. Uh, and so if you would have asked me this, five, six, seven years ago, I, I wouldn't have said um, a lot of these things would be in motion, but you go through the process and uh, it's like a Plinko chips almost. You, you know, you're going somewhere. You, you just don't know where you're going. And um, been, been fortunate um, really to just, you know, still be around to, to keep navigating life. Awesome, man. So. We should have talked like maybe a week ago because I'm currently working on my master's degree in um. public Administration and I had to put a paper and I wrote my paper on human capital management. So okay. I should have talked to you earlier. I'll send you some research on it. <laughs> awesome. Oh. Well, this has been great. Uh, I feel like we've covered a good range of things. We obviously could have gone deeper in certain certain uh, you know chapters of this conversation, but I just leaves a little bit more uh, meat on the bone for next time. We'll have to dig a little deeper. Um, and maybe have you back on if you'd be willing. And uh, we'll just enjoy catching up with you. Enjoy, we'll continue to keep up with you and what you're doing. And uh, just thanks for coming on here today and um, and talking with us, man. We appreciate it. I love it. it, man. Love you. Um, I'll see you soon. Uh, y'all, y'all, please keep this up. Absolutely, man. Congrats right. on everything you've accomplished, too. All right. Thank you all. Likewise. Thanks, All right, man. man. All right. See you.